Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Well, today we wrap up a message series about one of the most difficult issues humanity has ever faced in the past, one of the most difficult issues humanity will ever face in the future, and one of the most difficult issues you may be wrestling with even now, and that, of course, is the issue of money. The Bible has lots to say about money. Between the Old and New Testament, there are over 2,000 verses that talk about money. Why so many? Because God knows the power money can have over our lives. It could either use us or we can use it. God has entrusted all of us with a certain amount of financial resources, and we could either just take those and spend them, or we can make it count. We can invest in things of spiritual significance for the kingdom of God. But money is an uncomfortable thing to talk about. But just because it's a sensitive subject doesn't mean we should avoid it altogether. One of the reasons why it's such a sensitive subject is because I, I think for many of us, whenever we've talked about money, it always comes through the lens of guilt. Think about it. How were, were you raised and how was money talked about in your upbringing? Maybe for those of you who, who came out of families where money was really tight, Maybe any time you expressed a desire for something other than just the basic necessities, you were made to feel very guilty about that. Maybe you're a young adult who's living at home with your parents, and the guilt that you keep feeling is, why, why don't I have a, a job that makes more money, and why am I not further in life? And every time you think about money, you associate it with guilt because you feel like your presence in your home is a financial strain on the family. Maybe you're a part of a marriage that has some significant financial debt and your spouse jumps down your throat anytime you buy a cup of coffee from a drive-thru. And even if you're being frugal and paying down your debt, just buying a $5 Starbucks makes you feel a whole lot of guilt. Even well-intentioned Christians, including pastors, can make you feel guilty when it comes to money. Oh, you're going to Disneyland, huh? Oh, the whole family is going? You have season passes? I hope you're giving to Jesus as much as you're giving to Mickey. (laughs) Everything is just guilt, guilt, guilt. You know what I have learned over the years about guilt tactics? They don't work. Piling guilt upon a person is ineffective for two reasons. Number one, guilt wears off. You might feel bad in the moment. Just give it time. You'll move on. And number two, guilt causes rebellion. When we feel guilty about something, we fight against it. It's the same reason why if you didn't have a lot of money growing up, you become an adult who overspends. It's the same reason for the spouse who's made to feel guilty over small purchases. It just helps them to hide their secrets better. Guilt is ineffective, whether you're lecturing kids around a kitchen table or arguing with your spouse in a bedroom or even sitting and listening to a message from a pastor in church. Guilt doesn't work. And so today, I want to talk about money, and I don't want to try to make you do anything or make you feel anything. This is all I want to do today. 
I just want to do this. I just want to hold up a mirror. And I want us all to just honestly take a look at ourselves and answer two questions. What kind of person am I when it comes to God and money? And secondly, what kind of person do I want to be when it comes to God and money? So to guide our time today, we are going to look at five different individuals from the Bible who represent five different kinds of givers. We're defining a giver as someone who financially contributes to the work of God. So to kick off our time, we are going to be in the New Testament gospel of Luke chapter 19. So if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, make your way over to Luke 19. This will be our first of five stops today. And here we find Jesus in one of his many journeys where the crowds pressed in around him. And we are going to begin things in verse 1 of Luke 19. Read along with me. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible know that tax collectors were despised. They themselves were Jews who exploited their fellow countrymen. They worked for the Romans and they collected taxes to build up the Roman Empire. And at the same time, they'd hike up the price so they could line their own pockets. And here we meet Zacchaeus, who wasn't just any tax collector. He's the chief tax collector, which meant he was the CEO of all of the money grubbers who sold out their own people. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Some of you know that just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Israel, and I had a chance to go through Jericho, and as we were going, I passed this tree. I've got a picture of it right here, and uh, this tree that you'll see up on the screen is a sycamore tree that is over 2,000 years old. Could this have been the very sycamore tree that Zacchaeus climbed up to get a glimpse of this famous Jesus. We can't know for sure, but this may have been the very place Jesus paraded through as we find recorded in Luke chapter 19. This is what it says, verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. You know what's interesting about Jericho? Back then, it was a city chosen by many priests to live in, which meant when Jesus came to visit, he probably had no shortage of dinner invitations. But rather than dining with the religious elite or other influencers, Jesus chose to have dinner with the worst sinner of them all. And so moved by this gesture, look at how Zacchaeus responds. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And with this, we are introduced to our first kind of giver, and that is the emotional giver. The emotional giver is in the moment, and their feelings are tied to their finances. If the emotional giver had a slogan, it would be, I feel generous. That was Zacchaeus. He had an encounter with Jesus, and suddenly the things that were so important to him lost their shine. 
Or as the old hymn writer wrote, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Zacchaeus has this moment, and he's so moved by the fact that Jesus would even notice him, much less call him by his name, and then invite himself to eat with Zacchaeus, that that he began to give out of his emotions. I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. I'm paying back every debt times four. You get a camel, and you get a camel, and you get a camel, and you get a camel. He's feeling it in the moment. This is an example or a representative of the emotional giver. And many of us in the room are emotional givers. We're very in touch with our feelings, and it's important. And when we feel moved, then we are more uh, compelled to give. I've been an emotional giver in my life. I was just reflecting back on this this past week, and I remember a time when I was in college, and I went and attended this event with a Christian speaker, and I was so emotionally moved by what God uh, how God used him to speak into my life that when they called for an offering to help support his ministry, I opened up my wallet and emptied it out. It wasn't much, but it was a lot to me because I, I felt something there. And that's how many of you are too when it comes to giving. Occasionally we call uh, emotional givers tippers. You know, if, if you feel like the, the message was particularly powerful, you might drop a larger tip in the bag. And so Zacchaeus is a representative of our first kind of giver, the emotional giver, the one who says, I feel generous. That's our first kind of giver. For the second kind of giver, let's jump to the Old Testament, this time in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. And now we're going to the time of the prophet Elijah. There's so much idol worship going on in Israel that God sent the prophet Elijah to come declare a drought to wake people up from their sin so that they could turn their hearts to him. But this drought caused a lot of people to suffer, including the prophet himself. But God kept kept taking care of his needs the whole way through. And in 1 Kings 17, he does so in a most unusual way. Let's begin in verse 9. It says, Go at once to Zarephath and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, I know the economy has affected many of us in negative ways, but I'm willing to guess that none of us in here have reached the point where we got down to the last meal. That was the the case for this woman in Zarephath. Already had strikes against her. She already lost her husband, leaving her as a single mother trying to fend for herself and for her son. And they got down to the very end when their paths crossed with the prophet Elijah. And he said, hey, could I have some bread? For her to have met that request meant she and her son would have died sooner. But listen to what Elijah said, verse 13. He said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first, that's very key, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. 
the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. That last verse, she did as Elijah had told her, is an example of extraordinary faith. What this woman did was trusted in the word of God. Now remember, back then they didn't have the written Bible like you and I have today. The word of God came from the mouth of the prophet. And so this widow in Zarephath trusted in God and in his word and gave to the prophet first, and this was the result. Verse 15, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And with that, we meet the representative of our second kind of giver, and that is the intentional giver. The intentional giver is the one who decides that they're going to trust in God's word, and they are going to put money aside for the work of God. If the intentional giver had a slogan, it would be, put God first. That's precisely what this widow did. She gave first to Elijah and then to her son and herself. And as a result, all of her needs were met. By the way, this principle still applies today. In fact, it was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The promise from the word of God is when you intentionally give, your needs will be met. I've seen this to be true in my own life as well. I can recall when God began convicting my heart about being more intentional with my giving. I was much more impulsive. I'd give if I remembered. I'd give if I had some to give. And I really sensed God God convicting my heart about that. And I remember I was working at a different church at the time, and I sensed God speaking to me to, to put some action to these words. And so I went downstairs to the finance department and asked uh, the people there if they could just automatically deduct 10% out of my paycheck and let it go straight to offering before I ever see it. Now, that was before the days of going online and setting up recurring giving, which anybody can do now. But that was an action step I needed to take. And that same year, I started to have interesting financial problems. I remember uh, this fluke thing. My wife and I ended up owing a lot of money to the IRS in taxes, money we didn't have. We were right about to leave on a mission trip. We were feeling stressed out. I'm thinking, God, I just started giving to you, and now this is happening. And yet God took care of our needs. Someone from the church anonymously stepped in and paid that debt, and we saw God's provision over and over again. That's what happened with this widow when she intentionally gave, every single time she went to grab flour, there was more there the next day. Every time she went to pour oil, there was more there the next day. And don't you wonder if she ever stuck her fingers in that little jar and thought, is this going to be the day that God doesn't keep his word and I'm going to run out of flour? And when she grabbed her jug, did she ever think, is this going to be the day where God lets me down and nothing comes pouring out? And yet, because she kept God first, there was always more in the jar and the jug. The Zarephath widow is the example of our second kind of giver, the intentional giver. Now let's move on to our third. We'll go from a widow in the Old Testament to a widow in the New Testament. 
Make your way over to the book of Mark. We'll remain here for the remaining three givers. And in this particular passage, we find ourselves in the final week of Jesus' public ministry, where he is interacting with all kinds of people when he has this experience. This is Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. The temple was the epicenter of Jewish religious life. It was, first and foremost, a, a place of worship, uh, but, but it was much more than that. It was this massive area filled with all kinds of sections and courtyards and porticos and fountains and flowers. It was, it was a place of commerce, a place of community. It was, it was core to Jewish religious life. And in one of these particular courtyards, Jesus was sitting down and he was absor- observing people coming and bringing offerings to the temple treasury. He saw the rich and poor alike. But there was something about this little widow that caught his eye. She dropped in two small coins. Now, when I was in Israel, I got a replica of these coins, and here's a picture of it. These two coins are what's called a mite, M-I-T-E. And back then, a mite was barely enough to live on for a day. And so when this poor widow dropped her mite into the temple treasury, she was making the choice not to eat that day. And that tremendous act of faith and trust and sacrifice caught the very eye of Jesus himself. Look what he says in verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. And with this, we're introduced to our third kind of giver, the priority giver. The priority giver is very similar to the intentional giver, but here's the biggest difference. The priority giver is unwavering in their commitment regardless of whatever circumstance comes their way. If the priority giver had a slogan, it would be, no matter what. No matter what comes my way, I'm always going to give. And that was the example of this little widow. And Jesus said she gave more than the rich. Now, from a sheer bottom dollar standpoint, what the rich would have contributed was way more than what this little widow put in. But Jesus sees things you and I can't see, specifically our heart. And it's important to know that Jesus cares more about motive than he does about math. And when he called his disciples over and said, she's giving out of her poverty, she's giving way more, that tells me three things. Number one, God sees how much we give. Number two, God knows how much we got. And number three, God loves how much we trust. His heart is moved by people who trust, especially when the hard circumstances hit. Now listen, every single one of us is on a giving journey. And in my own life, this has not always been an area of strength. I've not always been a priority giver. 
as something that I'm, God's working on me with. I can recall a number of years ago, my wife and I, we, we had some unexpected bills kind of rock us. And for the first time in my married life, my outgoing expenses exceeded my incoming revenue. And so we had to make some cutbacks. So I decided that the thing we're going to cut back was our financial contribution to the church. Now, there's a whole lot of other things I could have cut back on. Could have cut back on our food budget. I could have cut back on our streaming services, home internet, entertainment. But instead, I chose to cut back on financial contribution. If anybody had an excuse, it was this widow. And yet she remained a priority giver. My rationale was, you know, we'll get back to giving what we were giving once we get back on our feet. And once we got back on our feet, I could tell you it was way harder to resume that same level of giving as before because the love of money is very hard to resist. This widow said, no matter what, it starts with God, even if I don't eat. And I've met priority givers. Many of them come here at Sunrise Church. Just two weeks ago, a woman told me that her and her husband, though he was diagnosed with cancer, they determined they were going to give no matter what, even though they're facing expensive monthly purchases for treatment. And their testimony was God continues to take care of our needs. God continues to bless us even as they walk the winding road of cancer. The priority givers are the no matter what kind of people. So we've got the emotional giver, the intentional giver, the priority giver. And now let's jump to our fourth kind of giver. Another woman. I'm seeing a trend here. Seems like the most generous people in the Bible were women. And so now we're going to jump over to Mark chapter 14. And this particular story of generosity is from a woman living in a place called Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And her act of generosity was a controversial one. Read with me. Mark 14, verse 3. While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Now, this particular account is recorded in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. In John's Gospel, this woman is identified as Mary. Mary was a close personal friend of Jesus, along with her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus. And in this particular account, she dumped extremely expensive perfume all over the head of Jesus. Now, any of you who've ever bought perfume knows that if you want the good stuff, it's going to be expensive. In fact, here's an example of this. I found it on the internet. It's kind of hard to see, but... For just the low, low price of $22,000, you too could have this bottle of perfume. And it says on there, only one left. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, act now while supplies last. I'm guessing that if you reached out and said you want to buy a $22,000 bottle of perfume, someone's going to figure it out. But perfume is expensive even by today's standards. What Mary had was pure nard, meaning it was the best of the best. 
And when she dumped it out, the disciples winced like, no, what are you doing? They even acknowledged, this is worth a year's wages. I remember not long ago, my son and I were getting ice cream, and uh, he ordered one of those ridiculously large ice cream concoctions, you know, the kind that takes like two hands and a back brace just to hold up and eat at the same time. You know, it's got the candy mixed in, all of this kind of stuff. And so we're waiting forever for the worker to bring it out. And finally they come and they present this giant thing to my son and he grabs it. There's just one problem. We asked for chocolate ice cream. This one had vanilla. And those of you who know anything about ice cream know this is a mistake of unforgivable proportions. We all know chocolate, chocolate is vastly superior to vanilla ice cream. Everybody knows that. All right. And so I kindly say to the worker, I said, ah, oh, look, I'm sorry. Uh, my son asked for chocolate ice cream. This is vanilla. She goes, oh, no problem. Takes it back and chucks it in the trash. It was so large, we heard it hit the bottom of the trash can. And as it happened, we're both like, no, don't throw it away. We could have given it to some kid in the ice cream shop. Would have made his day. But now nobody can have it. It's been wasted. And that's how we felt about ice cream. Imagine how the disciples felt when they saw this super expensive perfume just being dumped out in its entirety. You know, don't you wonder if they're like, you know, couldn't you have just put like a little thimble on his head and we could have just kept the rest? They were so angry with this woman. Jesus totally disagreed with their assessment. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And with that, we meet our fourth kind of giver, the extravagant giver. The extravagant giver is the one who eagerly and lavishly loves to give. If the extravagant giver had a slogan, it would be above and beyond. That's the kind of person Mary was. She extravagantly poured out this perfume on Jesus' head. And even though the disciples were angry, Jesus loved it. You know why? Because Jesus all this time had been dropping clues to his disciples that he was getting ready to die, and they weren't listening. You know who was listening? Mary. She had a funny habit of doing that. And so she thought, if there's one last way I could bless my Savior, after all he's done for me, let this be it. And she went and got her most expensive asset, pulled the seal off it, and dumped the entire thing on Jesus' body. Because extravagant givers know you can't outgive God. I've met extravagant givers, though they are rare, and they're not just wealthy people. They are people who have such a detachment from material things that they just eagerly and lavishly give, especially when they know that this kind of gift is going to further the work of God. Many of those people attend Sunrise Church, and their generosity is inspiring and often misunderstood and even criticized. 
Don't you love how the disciples were mad at Mary, saying, you should be using your money to help the poor? We love to tell other people how they should help the poor. You know what Jesus does? He grabs the mirror and holds it right back to the disciples and say, okay, you guys obviously care a whole lot about the poor. Why don't you do something about it with your own money? Don't get on Mary for her lavish, extravagant giving. And so we have the emotional giver, like Zacchaeus. We have the intentional giver, like the Zarephath widow. We have the priority giver, like the Jerusalem widow. Now we have the extravagant giver, like Mary of Bethany. And I want to put that list back up on the screen. You know what's interesting about all of these givers? Jesus embodies them all. Jesus was an emotional giver. And you read throughout the Gospels, he often showed compassion, even shedding tears, and he gave out of those emotions. Jesus was an intentional giver. Everything he did centered first on the Father. Everything he gave was secondary to giving to the Father first. Jesus was a priority giver. He agonized on the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane if there was another way to save humanity that didn't involve a cross. And yet, no matter what, he gave. And Jesus was an extravagant giver. He gave us the most expensive and valuable gift he ever could. He gave himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world that all who would believe would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus embodied all of the givers. But you're sharp. You're a smart person. You say, hang on, I, I thought there were supposed to be five kinds of givers. You only listed four. Well, there is one more. And this kind, Jesus didn't make the cut. For this last giver, we're going to remain in the book of Mark, but this time we're going to be in chapter 10. And once again, Jesus was in a place where he was teaching. He's moving from the country to the city. Crowds are forming around him. And one particular person jumped out and caught Jesus' ear. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right out of the gates, this man's question was flawed because he assumed that there's something we can do in our own merit to get eternity with Christ. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus was in no way saying that he himself was not God in the flesh. What he was doing was challenging this young man's definition of good. And so he baited him into a conversation about the Ten Commandments. You want to go to heaven? Just follow the Ten Commandments. Look how the young man responds in verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And with this, we're introduced to our fifth kind of giver, the non-giver. The non-giver is the one who hears Jesus' teaching on money and says, I just can't. I just can't part 
with my resources. I can't part with my assets. I can't part with my wallet. I just can't. It's interesting, this interaction that Jesus has with him, isn't it? I mean, this guy basically comes to Jesus and says, I've perfectly kept all ten commandments. That's all there is? Which is ironic, because does anyone know what the first commandment is? Here it is right here, Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. This young man came strutting in, thinking he was ten for ten on the commandments. Turns out he was oh for one. Because the God he worshipped was the God of money. And when Jesus said, go sell all your possessions, that's how you, you, you get into heaven. What Jesus was not suggesting was that the way that we can experience eternity in, in heaven with Christ is to divest ourselves of all of our financial assets. He wasn't saying that because if that were true, then we could all get to heaven based on our own merits. What Jesus was trying to get this young man to see was that he had not fully surrendered his heart to Christ. He had one foot in and one foot out. He wanted Jesus on his own terms. He wanted the blessings of Jesus without the personal sacrifice. He wanted the peace of Jesus without the personal relationship. And once he realized that wasn't possible, he bailed. He walked away sad. And this is how many people, maybe some of us in the room or watching online, feel about Jesus. There's, there's obviously something missing. That's why he, he fell on his knees before Jesus. Something in our soul isn't right. And what Jesus is inviting us all to is to surrender our lives fully. Every single God we're worshiping, whether it's the God of money, the God of family, the God of relationships, the God of success, whatever, Jesus wants us to surrender it all to him so that Jesus can be the only God in our lives. And yet for many of us, when we hear that, we do the same thing as this rich young ruler. We walk away sad and we give nothing. And I just wonder if there's anyone in here who that resonates. Maybe you haven't fully surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you're hanging on to something, but you've never fully let it go. Would you like to surrender your life to Jesus today? Now, I'm not talking about acknowledging that God exists, you know, the big man upstairs, or, or acknowledging that Jesus was a historical figure. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about confessing your sins to Jesus, admitting that you can't save yourself, believing in faith that Jesus died on a cross in your place and committing to follow him. If you've never made that kind of commitment before, I wanna help you do that today. In just a moment, I wanna lead you in a prayer. I'll give you some words you can repeat after me in the silence of your own heart. I'll help you pray the prayer, but the important thing is you gotta believe these words yourself. And so if today is the day you want to fully commit your life to Christ, I want to invite all of you, everyone in the room online, to bow your heads, close your eyes, and in the silence of your heart, I want you to repeat these words after me. Jesus, today I put my trust in you. Jesus, today I surrender to you. I confess my sins to you. I know I can't save myself, but 
but I believe in faith you died for me. And I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you tear down every other God in my life and change my heart so that I could leave my old life behind and follow in the way of Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, if you're somebody who prayed that prayer for the first time and surrendered your life to Christ, I wanna help you to, to let somebody know. Those of you watching online, there's links you could follow, but for the rest of us in here, there's a, a little card at the bottom of your program that you could just tear off it's a perforated card, and it just says on it, uh, I said yes, I prayed to receive Christ. You could just fill that out and tear this card off, and in just a moment when our ushers collect today's offering, you could just drop that card right in there, and one of our staff people will follow up with you and help you understand what it means to walk this road with Christ. Maybe you've done that already, but you're, you're not moving anywhere. You're just kind of stuck in the mud, and you want to take that next step. Here's an easy way how. Just text the word next to 909-281-7797. That's our sunrise number. And one of our staff people will receive that message. They'll exchange a few with you, help you take that next step. Maybe you want to get in a small group, get some people in your life, or you want to get involved in the church. You might need somebody to talk to, some assistance. Whatever the case is, text NEXT to 909-281-7797. Or you can stop by the next step table in our lobby, and there's somebody out there ready to answer whatever question that you might have about how to keep getting involved. Friends, I, I hope this message series has been a blessing to you. Next week, we're going to shift gears, and we are going to start a brand new message series all about the final week of Jesus' ministry. We're calling it Seven Days to Live. What would you do if you found out you had one week left to live? How would you spend those days? We're going to take a look at how Jesus spent his, and this series will carry us all the way to Easter and beyond who is someone you could invite with you to church next week to hear what will be a message series totally focused on the life of Jesus? And don't forget the fasting challenge starts this Tuesday. But until then, I'm gonna put the list of the five givers back up on the screen. And remember at the outset of the message, I said to you that I just wanna hold up a mirror today. And so this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to ask yourself two questions. The first one is this. Which of these five best describe who I am right now? Are you an emotional giver like Zacchaeus? You gotta feel it in the moment. Are you an intentional giver like the Zarephath widow? You wanna put some, some action to your faith and, and start putting money aside? Are you a priority giver, a no matter what kind of person? Are you an extravagant giver? You're just so eager to give and to do so lavishly. Or are you a non-giver who hears the teachings of Jesus and says, I just can't? Which one of these best describes you right now? And here's the second question. Which one of these do you want to be? What needs to change in your life to be the kind of giver that you think God is calling you to be? Guilt will not get you to be that kind of giver. A great message will not get you to be that kind of giver. Only God 
can get you to be that kind of giver. And if you're willing to ask that question of what kind of giver do you want me to be and then respond in faith, I believe you are one step closer to being the kind of person who could take their money and make it count. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for being a giving God who loved the world so much you gave your only son Thank you, Lord, for modeling generosity to all of us. And thank you for the fact that you didn't just leave us high and dry to fend for ourselves, but you came up with a way to take care of our sin problem by sacrificing your own son, Jesus, on the cross for the sins of the world. And we say thank you. And Lord, as all of us are on this giving journey, God, I pray that you would speak to us individually. May there be no guilt involved, Lord, but just your spirit of God working in hearts to stir us to be the kind of men and women you desire for us to be. And now, just like we do every week when we take an offering, Father, I pray that you accept these financial gifts as an act of worship and that you take them and multiply them to have an impact here and around the country and across the globe. We pray all of this in the most powerful name of Jesus. And if you believe in your heart, then somebody say amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.